0: com this is the Brian McClanahan show Three, two, one, zero, 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 zero. welcome back to the Brian McClanahan show this is episode 63 like be back with the program if you do like this podcast Please share it around on social media. Follow me on uh, Facebook. Like me on Twitter. Uh, like my YouTube page and help spread the word. You can also go to my website, BrianMcLanahan.com, and sign up for my email, my newsletter, which I send out. I try to send out once a week. Um, I was trying to do it more, but uh, time has prevented me from sending it out as much as I would like. But you do get a free ebook and also a free audiobook. Or subscribing to my email list, so go over there, it's quick and painless. Just give me your email, and I'll send you some stuff. And then I'll send you an email every now and then talking about things that I think are important. And uh, again, please spread the word, it's the only way that uh, you can help me, help me. I'll continue to grow and expand this uh, particular program. And uh, if you do like it, uh, tell your friends about it. So, uh, today, I want to talk about a book that I just received. Uh, right around, I guess, November of last year. Just hadn't had a whole lot of time to uh, talk about it yet. Um, But it's uh, William Watkins' Crossroads for Liberty, Recovering the Anti-Federalist Values of America's First Constitution. And so uh, there's uh, several things I want to address in this book. But first, uh, William Watkins uh, is a fellow at the Independent Institute in California. Uh, He's written extensively on American constitutional law. Uh, He wrote a wonderful book on the Virginia-Kentucky and resolutions, uh, and I think you should pick that one up. The title of that book is Reclaiming the American Revolution, Uh, and this book is very good as well. So uh, I'm going to talk about some of the themes in the book, and uh, you should go out and get it uh, and digest it. It's a nice uh, companion to my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution in that it takes a little different approach to the same subject, um, but it... uh, it covers uh, the same ground. So when we talk about the U.S. Constitution, this is something that people have asked me to do in this particular way, discussing the anti-federalists, and that's exactly what uh, Mr. Watkins does in this book. Um, when we talk about the, the Constitution itself and the ratification process, uh, we usually focus on the dispute between the Federalists, so-called Federalists and so-called anti-federalists. Now, uh, Mr. Watkins actually points out in the book that you know the Anti-Federalists really weren't Anti-Federalists. They really were the Federalists, and the Federalists were Nationalists. Um, and so I think that's something when we talk about this language of the Constitution, the ratification. We unfortunately use these terms, Federalists and Anti-Federalists, because that's what people know, but they are incorrect. Uh, in my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, I called them proponents and opponents of the document. Uh, the Anti-Federalists favored a federal union, a federal republic, Uh, In fact, there isn't really a whole lot of difference between the term confederation and federation. They mean essentially the same thing. And I think we forget that. Uh, And so the Federalists were the nationalists. What they really wanted was a national government with top-down authority, the ability to make decisions from the center that would affect the entire union. And generally, um, when you look at the early debates in the Philadelphia Convention, these nationalists, uh, wanted to eliminate the states. Even James Madison favored reducing the states to little more than administrative subdivisions of the, center go- of the central government. So uh, now you can say that after the Constitution was written and when you go to the debate process over uh, the ratification of the document, the Federalists then, many of them were pushing a federal union like what we had under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, in fact, that's how they argued the document would be interpreted once it was ratified. So when we look at this debate between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, um, one thing you can say about the Anti-Federalists is they were, they were prescient. They, they understood what was going to happen should this Constitution be ratified. And so we spend a lot of time often focusing on these people and saying, well, gosh, you know, Brutus was right. Uh, an old Whig was right. I mean, look at what these guys said, and look what's happened. We've gotten an elected king. We've gotten a government that's out of control. We've gotten a national government when the proponents of the document said that would never happen. We've got a federal judicial branch that has become the most powerful branch of government. Uh, we've got a, 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 a executive branch that has more power than King George III ever hoped to have. Uh, we've got a Congress that has no check on its power outside of the other two branches of government. But when you discuss all of these issues, what you are admitting and what the anti-Federalists said would happen, which did happen, is that the states would be reduced to, uh, as Hamilton called them, corporate powers. Now, what does that mean? When you look at the structure of government, for example, in the states, the state governments can incorporate cities. So cities and state governments and counties uh, are the creation of the states. You can't just walk out today and say, you know what, I'm going to create a city right here, and uh, we're going we're to do this, and uh, this city is going to be called whatever you want it to be called. You actually have to have the state agree to allow you to incorporate that city. Same thing with a county. The states have to create counties. If they want to create more counties, they can. If they want to reduce the amount of counties, they can do that. So the cities and the the counties in the state have to essentially have the permission of the state government to do just about anything, which shows that the state governments have the ultimate power. They are sovereign in that regard because they can create corporations. The general government, the federal government, this is where words matter again. We don't have a national government or a federal government, really. We have a general government or a central government. The general government in Washington, D.C. cannot create, at least constitutionally, corporations. Now, I know it's done it, but it doesn't really have corporate power. In fact, it needs the states to say yes or no to do anything. So, again, it shows you that the states really have all the power in this, in this government. And I talked about this in the uh, podcast, I Grant You the Power, uh, because uh, the states have granted leg- all legislative power to the Congress. And by doing so, they have the power to grant. So if you look at uh, Article 5 in the Constitution, in order to change the government, you have to have state authority. In order to amend the Constitution, you have to have the states do it. Uh, The states can also set up a convention. They can abolish the entire general government if they choose to do so. So that shows, Article 5 clearly shows that the states actually have all the power in this particular document. And of course, Article 7 says it's an agreement between the states, so ratifying the same. So what uh, Mr. Watkins has done in this particular book, which I think is is a marvelous book and a valuable contribution to our current political debates, is show that the states really were central to the government, that they've been abused, that the Anti-Federalists pointed out all of this would happen, and he showed you know, here's what the here's what the proponents of the document said. Here's what the opponents of the document said, and here's what's happened. He does this in a variety for a variety of issues, and I think that's that's really good. And I'll go over some of these things uh, in here in just a minute. Uh, but what he has he has done is show that the states really are, if you look at a stool, they are the fourth leg in the stool. And uh, more and more books need to be written about this. The states need to be shown to be a primary player, a primary actor. In that federal republic, because that's what we have. We have a federal republic. We don't have a singular or a unitary republic. We have a federal republic. And understanding these terms will help us change the language. You know, when people go to Washington, D.C., they say, I'm going to the nation's capital. No, you're not. There's no nation's capital. You're going to the capital of the federal republic. And so we need to use the proper terms. You don't go to the national government in Washington, D.C. You go to the general government. We have a, a, a federation of states or a union of states, not some, not some uh, you know, national government. The states have all the power. And if we start using the proper terms, we have a general government or a central government in Washington, D.C. If we use these proper terms, you change the entire way people think about that government. So language matters in our public discourse. We have to identify where people are wrong and saying certain things, and we have to use the right terms. If, if you can get people to start using the right terms, well, people start to think about the government differently. So, these anti-federalists, after the Constitution had been written in September of 1787, go on the offensive. And they forced, they forced the proponents of the document to respond And you had this very substantial debate over the powers, the proposed powers of this new constitution. Because, again, remember, the constitution was a dead letter if the states had not ratified. It didn't matter what the members of the Philadelphia Convention said. It only mattered what the states said. In fact, uh, James Madison said that. He said, look, the ratifying conventions of the states, which I know John Marshall tried to twist this to say, well, I mean, You had to do this in the state. How else could you do it? I mean, it was a constitution of the people in their entirety, but you had to do these things in the states. It's just, it's whitewashing history. It's changing the entire focus of history. But Madison said these state ratifying conventions gave it life and validity. Without the state ratifying conventions, the constitution means nothing. It had to have the states ratified. So when you go out and you look at how this process worked, first the most important speech in favor of the constitution was given uh, very shortly after the constitution had been written and signed in philadelphias given by james wilson it's called the state house yard speech and it's a speech that everyone played off of from that point forward they all talked about it the opponents and proponents of the document and wilson essentially said look you don't have to worry about this thing because if it doesn't say we can do it we can't do it that was his main argument And so everyone played off of that particular speech, the proponents of the document and the opponents of the document. And then you had, of course, uh, George Mason come out and list several objections to the Constitution, and people talked about these objections. The proponents of the document then worked against those objections. Of course, George Mason famously said he'd rather cut off his right hand than sign the document as it stood in Philadelphia. And what he wanted more than anything else was a Bill of Rights. And so we got that eventually. We had, we had a promise for a Bill of Rights. This is the only way Massachusetts would, would agree to the document. It was a very close vote there. It was the only way that uh, Virginia would essentially agree to the document, but New York would agree to the document. If you don't have Massachusetts, Virginia, and New York, you don't have a, uh, a federal republic because those are the three largest and most powerful states. Uh, even Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, I should say, the, the debate in Philadelphia there, when Pennsylvania was ratifying the document, it was a lot closer than people understand. I think that's one key about these ratifying conventions too. If you go back and say, "Well, these states ratified it," it was only unanimous or virtually unanimous in a few states. The margin of victory in New York was three votes. In uh, Massachusetts, it was uh, it was uh, less than a dozen. So, uh, these votes were very very close, very close. And uh, I think that's something that most people don't realize is that how close this Constitution came to, be, to going down in defeat. That people weren't happy with it. They weren't happy with the powers of the general government. And the anti-federalists, though opponents of the document, again, were pointing out deficiencies in the, in the document that Mr. Watkins has brought to bear. He's saying, look, we need to pay attention to these people because they, they said some things in 1787 and 1788 that were important. Uh, one thing I do want to say, I I, uh, I misspoke when I said the uh, less than a dozen votes. It was less, it was about two dozen votes in Massachusetts. So uh, I, had a, I had a brain uh, drain there when I said that, but it was about two dozen votes in Massachusetts. Still, not a whole lot when you're talking about over 300 votes and you only win by a couple of dozen. Um, it's, it's not a whole lot. So uh, one thing uh, Mr. Watkins has done, uh, again, going through these different issues. So, you look at the book, and uh, he points out, for example, the the push to get the Constitution. He discusses that history, and then he talks about um, several issues. For example, he talks about the problem of scale, which we've discussed on this part I've discussed on this podcast several times. And at the end of the book, he goes through uh, how this could be uh, altered in America today. But this was a major issue. Um, how large would this new government be? What type of representation would people have? Uh, Americans were very concerned, and they were well understood Montesquieu's warning that a republic cannot exist over a large territory. And so Madison had to answer this in the Federalist Essays. Uh, and this was uh, something that people discussed openly. Well, can we really do this? Can we have a, an effective republic over a territory as large as the United States when you look at just the space but also it was the amount of people that they had. and And in 1790 when the first census was taken, we had about uh, four million people in the United States. And uh, that amount of people now today is the same amount, same population the state of Alabama, for example. So uh, could you have a republic with four million people? Uh, and I think that that question has been answered in the affirmative, but you have to have, the proper ratio of representation. Not only that, you have to delegate the powers properly to the central authority. I think this is one argument that the proponents of the document made that was right on if you do it properly. So the argument that you needed to have a smaller representative ratio or more uh, more frequent elections, this was often brought up, particularly in Massachusetts, I think you could say that you don't need to do that if the government in Washington only has general powers. And what I mean by that, is that if they only had to handle things of commerce and defense, those two issues alone, they didn't worry about what the schools were doing, what your health care was, what the environmental legislation was, what the drug legislation was, all these other things that we focus on. If all they worried about was commerce and defense, then you don't need to have uh, more than biannual elections, and you don't need to have a small representative ratio because it's unimportant. Uh, These people only address questions that are of a general nature. What's good for the entire union? So that's get to the heart of some of these issues, the general welfare clause, uh, which uh, Mr. Watkins talks about. The general welfare of the union, not the people of the union, not the people of the states, but the general welfare of the union itself. And that's what taxes were to be levied for, nothing else. Nothing else. Not the minutiae of you know, what uh, City A is doing with its education policies. That didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. Uh, but what the general welfare of the union, raising enough revenue so that they can f- operate the union properly and, of course, handle these issues of commerce and defense. And I th- and I go back to Roger Sherman. I say this all the time. Roger Sherman, who was one of the most important members of the Philadelphia Convention and, of course, of the State Ratifying Convention in Connecticut, he wrote uh, several essays uh, in, in support of the Constitution. Uh, uh, Roger Sherman... Uh, said essentially, look, the, the general welfare of the Union is commerce and defense. He said this in Philadelphia. Um, he, he made that clear when he was arguing for the Constitution, when it was going through ratification in Connecticut. He was uh, one of the more, I mean, Thomas Jefferson said the man never said an a, a incorrect thing in his life. Uh, he, he authored the Great Compromise in Philadelphia, and Roger Sherman understood that the, the Constitution was only going to do general things. And he actually insisted that that idea of the general welfare was lifted from the Articles of Confederation. And this is one thing I like to point out uh, with this document, the Constitution. It says in the preamble we're going to create a more perfect union. But what, you, what do they mean by that? It was a more perfect union of states. The union had not changed. It was the same union. It's just that they had given the central authority more power. So it's a more perfect union of states, not of people. I don't care what the preamble says. They only changed the language there because they weren't certain if all the states would ratify the Constitution or not. So you can't say, we the people of the states of, if a couple of two, three, four states don't ratify the document. I mean, you only had to have nine. So what happens to the, to the other four states if they don't ratify? So... It's a union of states, and a lot of the language that was lifted from the articles carried the same meaning in the Constitution. It's a constitution for the United States of America, not of the United States of America. Again, that word "for" means something. So he goes through that. and then of course, he talks about consolidation, a major issue. Where are we going to consolidate? You know, Alexander Hamilton was saying we need to reduce the states to to corporations, essentially, and people bristled at this. So another idea that comes out of Philadelphia and, of course, the Constitution, we didn't consolidate. The Anti-Federalists were saying, well, this is going to consolidate. The Federalists, the proponents were saying, no, we're not. And so this is why I've often said it's not, you know, we can focus on the Anti-Federalists, but what we we really need to talk about are the friends of the Constitution, the proponents of the document and what they were saying about the document that is more important than anything else because if you hold them to their word we don't have problems in washington d c Uh, taxing and spending for the general welfare what does that general welfare mean what is the general welfare of the union again it's commerce and defense He points out that the Anti-Federalists were very suspicious about central taxing power and that it would be abused. In fact, one thing they said is that essentially we're going to have a situation where the general government is going to tax the states out of existence, meaning that the states won't be able to raise enough revenue to ensure that they exist. Now, uh, that's not necessarily true, but what we've gotten in America is excessive taxation. We now have a situation where Americans pay taxes to three sometimes four levels of government. You pay your city taxes, you pay your county taxes, you pay your state taxes, and you pay your taxes for the general government. And in some cases, that's over 60% of your income in some states. You can't get around paying all these levels of taxes in a variety of ways. You're paying taxes you don't even see when you go to the gas pump and you fill up your car. You're paying over 30 cents a gallon in gasoline. The government makes more money on your gasoline than the gasoline companies do. The oil companies, then the convenience store that's te- that's getting you to buy the gas. Sometimes they're making less than five cents a gallon on that gas. Uh, if they want to really ha- bring people in, they'll make two to three cents a gallon. Uh, I know in some cases even a penny a gallon. A penny a gallon is all that convenience store makes. They want you to come in and buy stuff in the store. So that's why they charge way you know exorbitant prices for candy bars and things like that, drinks. Because that's how they make their money. They don't make their money on gasoline, but the government makes money on gasoline. So this is, you know, when when people rail about, oh, my gosh, these evil oil companies and how expensive gasoline is, the government is making more money than anybody else. (laughs) So, you know, you have all these taxes, various levels of taxes, and that was a great fear of the anti-federalists. And and Watkins does a nice job getting into that, too. Uh, You know, regulating commerce, how would that work? We've seen that the so-called Commerce Clause of Article I, Section 8 has been abused over and over again, particularly in calling people uh, you know, agents of states. So if I buy something in one state and bring it across state lines into my state, I've just committed uh, and conducted interstate commerce. That's completely not true. Individuals are not states. But this is exactly how the Interstate Commerce Clause or the Commerce Clause and the Interstate Commerce part of that has been interpreted by the Supreme Court, I think unconstitutionally and unjustly, but this is what they've done. So, he talks about this fear of commerce, and how the general government would regulate commerce, and how they would abuse this clause. The anti were pointing things out that have happened. Uh, for example, you know, they fear that uh, commerce would be regulated in internal commerce in the states, and, and of course proponents of the document swore that would never happen. Even John Marshall himself said that you can't do that in Barron v. Baltimore, but... Uh, this is how the general government and the Supreme Court and the federal courts have interpreted today. Uh, the Necessary and Proper Clause, the you-can-do-anything-you-want-to clause now, which is what that means, but of course, uh, and and the opponents of the document, the Anti-Federalists, were worried. They called this the Sweeping Clause. Uh, this along with the Supremacy Clause, they figured this was going to enlarge the powers of the general government unreasonably, unconstitutionally, and everyone who supported the document said, no, don't worry, trust us. This is, it's it's redundant. In fact, uh, in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, uh, it was said that you could add this clause to the end of every one of the powers in Article I, Section 8, and it would mean nothing. It just means we have to pass legislation to do these things. But it doesn't unreasonably, or it can't enlarge the power. You can't create new powers with the necessary and proper clause. It cannot be done. But of course, we've seen that's what happened. Uh, You know, Alexander Hamilton said it couldn't be done. Of course, then he writes his proposal for a Bank of the United States, and that's what he goes back to. Well, it's necessary and proper for me to do my job. That's not what you said when the Constitution was going through ratification, Hamilton. Of course, this is an issue I get into quite in in quite detail in my forthcoming How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So um, it's something you're going to want to read because, uh, you know, at the end of that book, at the end of the section, particularly on Hamilton, which is about half the book, I told my wife the other night as I was going through this, Hamilton would have wanted to duel me after reading this because I called him a liar over and over again, and uh, Hamilton would not have appreciated that. You know, Voter qualifications. This is another issue where the the central government has said states are going to be restricted on what they can do in this particular regard, but the states are supposed to have wide leeway. The states were to establish who could vote and who couldn't vote. Um, This is something that people don't like me to say, but you know, states can decide if they want illegal immigrants to vote or not. They can do it. I mean, the state of California can say we're going to have every illegal immigrant in the country come over here and vote. If we have a federative system, though, it doesn't matter. Particularly with the president, if we keep the electoral college, I mean, uh, in the the pre, the, uh, the California could vote you know a, a ten to one majority for a particular candidate, and uh, they only get that state. It doesn't matter. This is why you know. If California wants to welcome uh, the uh, illegal immigrants with open arms into that state and say, come on, vote here, uh, it really doesn't matter because it's only 55 electoral college votes. Uh, they still, I mean, theoretically don't get counted in the Senate, in the census, so you still only get 55 electoral college votes. It doesn't matter what the popular vote is. So, uh, but the states can do that. The states can also decide if you have to take a test to vote, if you have to show an ID to vote, they can do all those kind of things, too. The general government has no control over that. The only thing that you cannot do is prohibit people from voting because of sex, race, or age, as long as you're over 18. That's it. You can't have a poll tax either. Uh, so I should those four things. As long as you're not doing those four things, the states can do whatever they want. And so voter qualifications. I mean, this was a major issue. Is the general government going to tell us who and who can't vote, who can and can't vote? So uh, uh, Mr. Watkins brings that up. Standing armies, a great fear of the, uh, of the uh, opponents of the Constitution. We'd have a standing army, and that standing army would be used to coerce the population. Now, it hasn't happened that way, but we do have a standing army that's very large and uh, theoretically could do that if they were ordered to do so. Uh, and this is something that comes up every now and then. We were supposed to have a system where the militia was um, the primary mode of defense in America, and the militia being all able-bodied men. 18 to 45, or in that particular range, we could say maybe today it's not. You don't have to go up to 45. Maybe 18 to 40 or 18 to 35. But the men were of. Uh, we were supposed to have a constant men at arms, who were citizens, citizen soldiers, and they were going to defend the re- the federal republic against invasion, or insurrection. Uh, so, uh, the standing army was often, uh, you know, something that people were highly uh, critical of. Uh, the commander in chief, of course, you were going to have a neglected king. Again, proponents of the document said that wouldn't happen, but the Anti-Federalists pointed out it would, and it has. So he brings that up. Uh, the judiciary, one of the great fears is that the federal judiciary would swallow up the states, that the state courts would become impotent and irrelevant, and I think that's essentially happened. Uh, and that's another issue I talk about in my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America because I get into John Marshall, Joseph Story, and Hugo Black. More importantly, John Marshall. Uh, but this is um, this has happened the state courts can't really do anything because uh, even if they rule on a particular issue, you just appeal it to a federal court, and therefore the state court is overridden. So why even have the state courts? What's the point uh, when every issue becomes federal? Now, I know sometimes federal judges keep their you know proper uh, jurisdiction, but they don't often do it, and uh, they they only do it for things like traffic tickets. I mean, they're not going to hear that kind of stuff, but anything that has to deal with uh, you know, supposedly federal question. You know, for example, marriage, that's not a federal question, but the 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 uh, federal courts have weighed in on the issue, illegally. Uh, treaties, the amendment process. He gets into so many issues. This is great, um, and the the best chapter. There's actually two things that I think are very interesting about this book. Chapter 19, which is final chapter, lessons for today. He gets into this idea of scale. For example, what can we do? What were some of the things the opponents of the Anti-Federalists were pointing out that were uh, essential? Uh, and how can we learn from those things? And one of the things he spends a lot of time on is representative ratio. Should we have a larger Congress? Should we? Should, you know, Congress has punted its responsibility in this regard for over 100 years. Uh, they haven't reapportioned. They haven't decided to increase the members of Congress, which is constitutionally required in over 100 years or around 100 years. And um that's something we need to reconsider. Do we need eight hundred seats in the Congress? Do we need a thousand seats in the Congress? That would give us a better representative ratio to double the ratio uh to double the members of Congress or triple it. Uh, you'd go from about seven hundred thousand uh to one ratio to about um you know two hundred thousand to one, which would be better if we had over a thousand members in the in the House uh, and he says this is not unworkable today because of modern technology and other things, we don't actually have debates, we have committee votes. So it's not like it was in the 19th century when people, you had great debates, and you had even the early 20th century, when people actually debated things. They don't do that anymore. Uh, and so he talks about how we could maybe change some of these things. But then he has a very interesting section, Appendix D. Now, you wouldn't get this anywhere else but with someone like William Watkins. Lessons from the Confederate Constitution. And this is the forgotten part of American constitutional thought. What did the Confederate Constitution have to say about some of these issues? And so he points out where the Confederate Constitutions made adjustments based on their understanding of the document. He says, you know, this is what the authors of the Confederate Constitution said they were doing. There were problems with the U.S. Constitution, and so we need to make these changes. And so that's a wonderful addition to this book uh, and a great book. Again, you've got to go out and get Crossroads for Liberty uh, it's it's a great book because it goes through all of these issues from an anti-federalist perspective or an opponent of the document, their perspective, and how they were so right on so many issues and that the proponents of the document were essentially lying. And so this is what I said in my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution, that we should follow the proponents of the document. We should hold their feet to the fire. This is exactly what you said it would do, and so this is what it's going to do. Uh, But you can also say, well, the opponents were right. Maybe we need to rethink the entire thing. Uh, We need to rethink these ideas of decentralization, nullification, secession, all of these things that, of course, I've talked about extensively on this podcast. Uh, Should we start thinking about other solutions to this major problem, which is an out-of-control federal government or an out-of-control general government? Uh, We don't really have a federal government anymore because the states aren't represented. Uh, The 17th Amendment ruined Federalism, Because now you have a national plebiscite for these uh, senators and they don't represent their states. So we've gone from a federal republic to an empire. And as Watkins points out as well in the book, uh, this was the major issue over and over again moving forward, the powers of the states vis-a-vis the general government. Uh, and that was the issue before the American War for Independence. As Jack Green has pointed out, it was a constitutional crisis. What powers the colonies had vis-a-vis the parliament and the empire? This is the major issue of American history. And it's still going to continue to be the major issue of American history because we like local self-government. And if we really like local self-government, then we need to emasculate that general government. And how do you do it? you got to have a government to check a government you got to have, quote-unquote, states' rights. And in any particular way, it has to happen. And so that's essential. That's the main theme, if you can get that out of the book. That's it. We have to have state powers. Um, So this is what the Jeffersonians were constantly saying. We have to have state to check the general government. Because if we don't, the general government will get out of control. And that's exactly what's happened in America. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, Go out and buy Crossroads for Liberty uh, by William Watkins. And uh, while you're at it, uh, you can pick up My Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. Uh, There is a deal on those. Of course, uh, at at, uh, various Barnes and Nobles, they have it for a reduced price. But if you can't get it there, you can also get it on Amazon.com. You can get a signed copy through my website, BrianMcClainahan.com, if you want one of those. So uh, go on out there and check that out. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.